Okay, so if we should, hopefully, uh, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Colossians. And we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 2 this morning, specifically verses 13 through 15. And as you guys are turning there, um, there are two kinds of heart transplants that happen. The first kind of heart transplant is called an orthotopic heart transplant, I learned. And that's when the failing heart of the patient is completely removed and the new heart is put in place. Um, that's probably the most well-known type of heart transplant. The other, though, is called a heterotopic transplant. And in this situation, the old heart is left in there, in the patient, and they connect the new heart to the old heart. Uh, so in effect, the person has a, a double heart situation going on. And the hope is that the new heart will, will strengthen the old heart. And I thought that was interesting because when it comes to our position before God, the heart transplant that God does in our lives Many of us kind of want that second heart transplant. We want the new heart put in there, but we also want the old heart to remain. You know, we want just enough of, of Jesus to make our lives better and healthier, but we don't want to completely give up the old heart. Or we want to keep the old heart in case this, this walk with Christ, this lifestyle following Jesus becomes too hard. We still have that old heart there. But that's not what, how the Lord operates. The reality is there's only one type of heart transplant in God's economy, and that's the complete removal of the old heart and the complete giving of a, of a new heart. He, the old heart we have, it, it's, it's lifeless. It's old. It's dead. It, it can't do anything for you. But the new heart that he gives us in and through faith in Jesus Christ, that's a strong, living, beating heart, and it lives and beats for him and his glory alone. That's the only heart that's going to enable you to have eternal life. And that's the heart that by faith gets transplanted into us. And so last week we began unpacking uh, this truth of what it means to be filled in him. We saw that in the beginning there of verse 10, in him, you have been filled. And we're going to continue with that uh, study. So this is the second part of this, of this message, right? Filled in him part two. And what we're going to see this morning is that because we've been filled in Christ, we have a new life in him, and it's a victorious one. Because we have been filled with Christ, we can walk in the new and victorious life. And so let me read our passage this morning, and you can follow along. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them in him. There's so much, uh, there's so much doctrine and truth and richness in these verses 
um, that I have to remember that it is a, this is a morning service, not a conference. Um, and so um, we're going to, we have no deadlines. The Lord has no timetable for us as to how fast we get to this book of Colossians. And the doctrine and truths in these verses are very important. So we're going to walk slow and we might have part three next week. And you know what? That's okay because we really need to understand this newness of life and this victory, a victorious life that Christ has given us. Um, so let's start doing that. The first point I want us to see is that we have been given a new life, which is the forgiven life. We have been given a new and forgiven life. We see this in, verses, in verse 13. And you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you a life alive with him. Now, something we, I think lots of us know, but I don't think we spend enough time focusing on is that apart from the Lord Jesus Christ residing in you by faith, you are completely dead. You're dead. And we give lip service to that. But I really want us to understand it. So let's look at how Paul begins unpacking this. He says, first, you were dead in your, trans your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Now, that, let's take the first word transgressions there, right? Let's, let's, let's see what these two terms mean and how they differ. Interestingly, the word transgressions can literally mean to take a false step, to take a wrong step and fall. Paul uses it throughout his letters to refer to, to the human sinning. Right? A false step, rather than walking in line with God, we have stepped outside of the line and we've taken a false step toward a false way of living. To transgress means we've, we have violated God's standard. God has given us a moral standard in which we are to live in submission to. And transgressions means we have violated the standards, the rules, the laws, the decrees that God has set forth. Now, that second term, though, the uncircumcision of the flesh, right, that would bring to mind Gentiles who, being uncircumcised, would show themselves to be outside of God's covenant people, the Jewish nation. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. It was a term used to refer to those outside of God's covenant community. Now, some have said that the reason Paul's including this is because he really wants to highlight the Gentile makeup of the church in Colossae. That's a possibility. But let's look back at verse 11. In whom you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. What Paul is saying here in verse 13, he's using this imagery of circumcision and uncircumcision in a metaphorical sense, more, more so. What he's trying to say here, he, here 
When you were dead in the uncircumcision of your flesh, you were dead in your sin. You were dead in your sin nature. Your sin nature had not been cut up, cut out off of you. We saw last week that the circumcision made without hands in Christ was the new birth. And so Paul is really wanting them to understand through vivid imagery, you have violated God's standard. Because of your sin nature, you were not set apart by the circumcision. You were dead in every way. So we put these two terms together. Paul's really saying, because you have a sin nature, you're continuously violating God's law. See, you don't sin. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. It's your nature. It's who you are. You were born. I was born an enemy of God. And therefore, the way I live is evidence of my spiritual deadness and my inability to please him. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verse 8, he says, And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. These are the things, these are the statements, these are the truths that the world finds so offensive, so scandalous. Because what we're saying there is that if you are not in Christ by faith, there is nothing you can think, say, do or desire that could please God. You are spiritually unable to do that. It's not that you don't have moral agency, but it's that there's no desire within you to do it. You have the moral agency to do what God commands, but you transgress, you willfully say, I want no part of that. And, you know, it's interesting because this is exactly what we've been told from the very beginning. If we were to go to Exodus, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter two, right? One chapter before the whole world unravels. In Genesis chapter two, God has a conversation with Adam, who is our representative, our federal head. And he tells him in verses 16 and 17. And Yahweh God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may surely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in that day that you eat from it, you will surely die. That part, you shall surely die, a more a very literal translation of that means dying you shall die. You have, you, if you eat from that tree, Adam, you will have an instantaneous spiritual death, but then there will be a continual dying process physically. This was from the very beginning, this idea that we would be dead in our sin if we transgress the law of God. We were told up front. And yet, Adam and Eve, who had the capacity to please God at that point, but also the capacity to disobey God, 
choose to disobey God, choose to eat from the tree that he said not to. And as a result, every person since Adam has inherited a sin nature and has been born into this world dead on arrival. Go to your maternity ward in your hospital and see all those cute babies. They are all born spiritually dead. They are spiritual stillborns. And I think that's important. I don't say that to be harsh. I don't say that to be insensitive from, to, to people who perhaps have lost the child. But we have to deal with the truth of Scripture. Because until we are honest with the human condition, we will not understand the need for Christ and the need for life in him. Now, to, be, to go back to Genesis now, that was in Genesis 2, but in Genesis 3, look what happens. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the tree, uh, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God said you shall not eat from it, and you shall not touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from me, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here it is. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. And she took from it and ate. And she also gave and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves going coverings. At that moment, humanity sustained a spiritual death. To be spiritually dead means to be separated from God. Adam represented the entire human race in that moment. That's, we, we hear that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man... Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, it isn't simply that we're spiritually dead because Adam represented us, though that's true. Your own actions show that you're spiritually dead apart from Christ. My own actions show that I'm spiritually dead from, apart from Christ. Like I've said multiple times, the book of, of Ephesians can almost be a commentary on the book of Colossians. And we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that our spiritual death isn't just something we've inherited, it's something we participated. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. And you were dead in your transgress transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Be honest with yourself for a moment. Hear what Paul said there in Ephesians chapter 2. 
It, like one of the, I think one of the dangers for the follower of Jesus after some time of following him is you begin to see who you were as better than you really were. I wasn't really that bad. There's no way I really did that. We minimize how depraved we once were. And there's nothing more damaging than to forget what God saved you from. Because right here, right now, apart from the grace of God, you would return to your depravity the way a dog returns to its vomit. Don't minimize who you were. By minimizing who you were, you're also minimizing the grace of God in the work of Jesus Christ in your life. You were evil. You were wicked. You were a horrible person. You were lustful. You were full of anger, rage, malice, deceit, gossip, lewdness. Adam represented us and we inherited his sin nature, but we really show, apart from Jesus, that we're just like our daddy. We show we were just like our father, Adam. We would, if God were to rewind time and put us in the garden, we would have done no better. We would have done the same exact thing. Every woman on this, on the, on this Zoom message, you guys would have ate from the tree. Every single man here, I don't care how strong of a man you think you are, you would have listened to Eve and ate the fruit. Now, some say, well, that's not fair. It's not fair that Adam represented me. And I've used this illustration before because we understand the principle at work here. Basketball is a great game. But in basketball, if one player commits a foul, the entire team sustains the penalty of that foul. The player committing a foul represents the team. And it's the same thing. Adam committed a technical foul in the garden. And as a result, we all sustain the penalty of that. And let me say this. If you think it's not fair that Adam represented you in the garden when he sinned against God and fell, then you should think it's equally scandalous and not want Christ to represent you on the cross. If Adam, if you think it's wrong for Adam to represent you in the garden, then you have to think it's wrong for Christ to represent you on the cross. Through Adam, we have a sin nature, which means it's impossible for us to not sin. It is impossible. And the Bible tells us that sin equals death. Romans 6, 23, the first part. For the wages of sin is death. That's what you've earned. That's what I've earned. Now, let's talk for a moment about this spiritual deadness. In, in a very real way, I think, people who have not come to faith in Christ are almost walking around this world as spiritual zombies. They're living, they're breathing, they're communicating, they're going about life, but they're spiritually dead. They're alive and yet not. They're zombies, in a sense. What can dead people do? Dead people can't do anything because they're dead. 
go to a cemetery, you can't have a conversation with a dead person. I go to Chicago right now and go to my grandfather's grave. Guess what? I can sit there all day. He's not going to go for a walk. We're not going to grab lunch. He's dead. So now here's where we're going to might ruffle some feathers. Because everybody is born spiritually dead, it means that everybody, nobody seeks God. A spirit, if you're spiritually dead, you cannot seek God. Paul makes this abundantly clear in the beginning of in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 10. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This is the, this is the humor of seeker-sensitive churches. Nobody seeks after. The only person that seeks is God. God seeks out his sheep. A seeker-sensitive church should be a Bible-preaching church because that is how God is seeking the, his, his lost sheep, through the proclamation of the word. Na- humanity, natural man, cannot seek after God because he's dead. Nor does he have a desire for God. We saw that right then in Romans. No one seeks for God. No one has a desire for God. They hate God. You hated God prior to your conversion. Spiritually dead people cannot see, do not seek God for the same reason that robbers don't seek the police. Because they don't want God. They know they're held accountable to God. Spiritually dead people don't have the capacity to trust God. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Or first Corinthians chapter two, verse 14. But the natural man does not accept the depths of the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him, for he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. I really want to be clear because it's so, you know, so often we think of of people who have not come to faith in Christ as drowning. And Jesus is the amazing lifeguard. He jumps into the water and he swims after them. He reaches out and he's just grab hold of my hand and I'll save you and you won't drown. And as, as, as beautiful of a picture that is, that's built purely on emotionalism. That's nothing built on biblical truth because you're not struggling and drowning. You are at the bottom of the ocean, dead, body rotting. You're fish food. Rather, Jesus jumps to the bottom of the ocean, pulls you out, and breathes new life into you. He resuscitates you completely. And it's so important because if you don't have that perspective, ultimately, you're sharing in the glory that should only be to God. Because at some point, you made a wise decision to seek God, to choose God. And you are robbing God, as if you could, of some of his glory. 
Paul says here in Colossians 2.13, and you being dead in, the, in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. I want you to understand the reality of humanity in a post-Genesis 3 world. Let me just show you some of the ways of who you are and who I am, who the world is, because of what took place in Genesis 3. We've seen here, you're dead in your sin. You're dead. Colossians 2.13, Ephesians 2.1. But because you're dead, you're also debased. You have a debased mind. Romans 1.28 says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. Humanity now has a debased mind. They seek to do those things. Their mind is given to those things that are repulsive to the Lord. We're dead. We're debased. We're darkened. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. Being darkened in their mind, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Darkness is a, a term used for, for sin, for lack of understanding, for lack of clarity. Because of, the, because of our sin nature, we're dead, we're debased, and we have a darkened mind. Our mind is given to darkness, to sin, to depravity. We're also deluded. Colossians 2, verse 4. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive arguments. Paul is warning us to not be deluded because the world itself, apart from Christ, is already deluded, deceived. That brings us to the next one. We're deluded, we're deceived. Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. The world is deceived. They lie in deception. They lie under the power and presence of sin, and, and as Satan seeks to, to reign hell on earth, literally, he takes these spiritually dead people and brings them further into debased thinking, to darkened thinking, to deluded thinking, to deceived thinking. And they're depraved. You're depraved apart from Christ, which means that you're radically sinful in every part of your being. There is not one part of your humanity apart from Christ that is not stained with sin. First Timothy chapter six, verse five. And constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of truth. Because your mind is rotted with sin, it is deprived of truth because truth can't live there. And lastly, you're defiled. Titus chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving... Nothing is pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. 
we could go on and on, but I really just wanted to drive home that what Paul is saying here in verse 13, that you are dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. If you miss that, if you water that down, you are going to miss the power of the forgiven and new life that has been given to you in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are going to minimize the value of Christ in your life if you look back down the corridors of time and somehow try to clean up who you were at one point. Who you were is who you are apart from Jesus. And so we saw there, we were dead in our transgression. We, we were spiritually dead. Now we can talk about this new life that we've been given. Again, verse 13. He made you alive with him. So if you're spiritually dead, notice he made you alive. He didn't help nurse you back to health. He made you alive. Now, I'm not trying to be divisive and get into whole Calvinism and Arminianism. I'm just trying to say what the Bible says. And last time I checked, I have not... I have not ever turned on the news and just heard dead person springs up from grave, resumes life as normal. No. Last I seen the news, dead people stay dead. So when he says he made you alive, it is 100% a work of God's sovereign, omnipotent grace. Because of deadness, spiritually dead, deadness, God has to intervene and perform a supernatural act. The natural man cannot give himself supernatural life. Listen to what it says in John chapter 6. In John 6, we'll start at verse, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. You cannot come to the Lord Jesus Christ on your own unless the Father draws you to him. You just can't. In chapter 6, verse, verse 65, and he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. We do not have the natural capacity to do it. God and God alone has to draw us to Christ. Again, if we go to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we should commit to memory. But listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So let's unpack this a little bit because what I think oftentimes where so, so much of the misunderstanding happens is the difference between two doctrines, regeneration and faith. So let's talk about being given this new life, making you alive in Christ. He's talking about something known as the doctrine of regeneration. And Regeneration always takes place before we exercise faith. 
you can say regeneration precedes faith. John chapter 3, everybody thinks about, you know, John 3, 16, but there's a whole bunch of important stuff happening right before we get to that verse that everybody has on at football games. Listen to the conversation Jesus is having with Nicodemus starting at verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel, I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with everyone who's been born of the spirit. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is the one who gives us this new life. Notice the life has to take place first. A child doesn't give birth to itself. But it responds to being, to being brought into the world. Again, the wind blows where it wishes, nobody sees, but you hear it. You see the effects of the wind. We see the effects of the new birth. We see that we have to be born again. That imagery is very clear. We don't bring ourselves into existence. We don't give ourselves birth, natural birth. So this is really important, and I hope it brings you to a place of worship. If you're sitting here today and you are truly a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is not because you first chose him. Rather, it's because God has chosen to give you life in his son. You were born again and then you naturally cried out in faith as a baby naturally cries out being brought into the world. Regeneration is what God has done, making, it, making you able to respond in faith. And he's done it by his Holy Spirit. And that should be beautiful to us because we should see from what we saw of spiritual deadness. Had God not done that, there was no hope. No hope at all. Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not by works, which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy, through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. It is a beautiful thing what God has done. He is worthy of our worship, praise, and glory for it. We have no part in this, and so we shouldn't think we do because we're, we're minimizing the amazing work of Christ, of the Godhead, of, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity were involved in bringing you to new life. The Father chose you. The Son purchased you. The Holy Spirit applied the work of Christ to you. It was a Trinitarian act of love on your behalf. And notice he says, and we're here back in, we were to go back to Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. He made you alive with him. Eternal life cannot be found in anyone else or in any other location. This life is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
a very interesting, you know, Bible exercise would be to read through the Gospel of John and just highlight or circle or underline every time the word life appears. You'd see it appears over 40 times, I think 45 times. John is trying, just like the word believe appears over 90 times, it is trying to make a very clear point in John's Gospel. To believe is to receive in Christ, is to receive life in Christ. Jesus Christ alone has the life. So I'm going to read just verses out of John. Not all of them. But like I said, we're going to go slow because honestly, reading scripture is going to be far more powerful even than me preaching. John 1.4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. John chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John chapter 5, verse 21. For just as the father raises, a, raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he wishes. John five twenty six. For just as the father has life in, in himself, even so he gave to the Son, also to have life in himself. John chapter 6, verse 48. Sorry, verse 47 start. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. John chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. John 14, 6. Jesus, and Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And lastly, John chapter 20, verse 31. We see the whole purpose of John's book here. But these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If you take nothing away from the sermon except these two truths, it's this. You are dead in your sin and you can have life in Christ. So let me ask the question. Do you sitting here right now have eternal life in the Lord Jesus Christ? I know many will say yes. Almost everybody on that I, I see here would say yes. And I praise God for that. So let me ask those who do have life in Christ. The second question. Are you prizing the life that you have in Christ? Are you squandering it? Have you been given life in Christ and you're just living life for you? Have you been giving life in Christ, but you're still trying to live according to the deadness of the old life? 
Do you have life in Christ, but you don't really focus on Christ? Think about Christ, make him known. You were brought from the grave unto glory. Think about that. You had a one-way ticket to hell, and now you have a one-way ticket to eternal paradise with Christ in heaven. You walked around blind, darkened in this world, and now you can see and are in the light. You had a debased mind, and now you have a renewed mind. You were deceived, but now you can see truth. This life that we have and this deadness that we've been brought from is not something that we say, okay, got that moving on to the next aspect of Christianity, you know, 101. We don't graduate from this. This is where we live in the heart of this. I was a dead, wretched, vile, hell-deserving sinner. I am a vile, hell-bound, deserving sinner if Jesus is not my righteousness, if I don't have faith in him. Right here, right now, where you're sitting, you should have great hope and confidence in your eternal destiny, but not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is. So often, we, we, the Lord saves us, and we have that kind of honeymoon period where we're like, we see Jesus everywhere. You hear people say, well, you know, you're really on fire for the Lord when you first get saved. And there's this myth that somehow... That fire dies down and you get into a rhythm. And you know what happens then? I hear so many people start being like the, um, the Pharisee who, be, who says, well, I'm not a sinner like those guys that we see in Luke's gospel. No. The wickedest person you see outside is you if Jesus isn't in you by his spirit. You have not been made a better you. All that you are is by the grace of God living in you by his spirit. Apart from that new nature, that new creation that he has put in you, you would make, you would be just like everybody else that you have a tendency and I have a tendency to look down on. I'm there. I do it. I know there are times I see people. I'm like, oh my gosh, how can they be living like that? And I need to be like, wait a second. It is strictly by the grace of God. That I'm not buddy, that I'm not buddy buddy with those people. Our life is in Christ. The quantity and quality of life we have is because of what Christ has done and is doing in us by his Holy Spirit. We would be spiritually dead without him. And so how do we receive this new life? Let's let's keep looking here. Having graciously forgiven us all our us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of death, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Three important terms here, forgiveness, certificate of death, and decrees against us. Forgiveness, right? It means that, that God has pardoned. He has canceled. It says that he has put our sin as far as the east is from the west. having graciously forgiven us. Again, that's important because grace means, grace is never deserved. So if he has graciously forgiven us, it does not mean he's been forgiven us because of something we've done, something we've earned, that we've merited it. 
He's forgiven us out of the abundance of who he is and his character. Having graciously forgiven us of all our transgressions. We saw what transgressions meant earlier. So he says, canceled out the certificate of debt. Now, the certificate of debt was a handwritten certificate that the person in debt would write to the other. It was written out by the hand of the debtor. And so you literally, apart from Christ, have a a ledger showing that you are in debt to God. And he goes on and unpacks that. What does this certificate consist of? The decrees against us. It's a re- this is a reference to the law of God, the Mosaic law. We see it mentioned in, in Ephesians 2.15. In, in Romans 1, we see that even those that have not received the, the, the law of God have a law against themselves because of the conscience and God being made known in, in the world. Meaning every single person is without excuse before God. Every single person has the law of God showing their guilt, their transgression, their violation, their debt. And it's hostile to them. It's hostile toward us because it condemns us. It shows us that we are in violation, that we are sinners. To the unsaved person, not in Christ, the law of God, both in creation and in his written word, is an enemy. It's hostile because it's condemning them. This is why godless countries outlaw the word of God. Because the godless see the word of God and they know they stand condemned by it. Every single person in this world knows there's a God. There is no true atheist, says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness in Romans. The reason people want to say there is no God, remove the word of God, and remove any talk of God is because at the mention of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Every single sinful person has their conscience attacked and they know he is true and that every man is a liar. And so let's remove him so we don't have to deal with him. The decrees against us are hostile because they expose us for who we really are. Nobody can obey the, the law of God perfectly. That's why it's hostile. And that reminds us that the law of God is the only standard that can regulate human behavior. But let me say that again, especially as Americans who put so much hope in our political parties and legislation. The law of God, the word of God, is the only standard to regulate human behavior. We don't need better politicians. We need a revival in our country of who God is and, and the supremacy and sufficiency of the word of God to rule our nations. Now he says the certificate of debt, every single person owes a debt to God. Every single person, you know, one of the most uh, amazing passages is found in Matthew 18, right? Um, because it shows that we have a debt that we can never pay back to God. So in Matthew 18, Listen to verses 23 through 29. 
For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he begun to settle them, one owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. Therefore, the slave fell to the ground and was prostrating himself before him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. He could never pay back that debt, though. And feeling compassion, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii, nothing compared to what he owed his master. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and was pleading with him, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I've had mercy with you? See, the first, the slave owing 10,000 talents, he can never in his lifetime repay. And yet the master in his grace forgives. That's a picture of what Christ has done for us. We have a debt that would take an eternity to pay back. And because eternity never ends, we can never pay back. That's why we saw all men rightly deserve the punishment of death and hell. For the wages of sin is death. That's what you've earned. Your sin has earned you a paycheck that is death and hell. Romans 6.23. But here we are seeing that it is that very debt that God has forgiven in Christ. It has been canceled out, it continues to say. Canceled out the certificate of debt. The debt has been erased is what that's saying. Back then, um, back then, the ink they used didn't have acid in it. So when they would write up papyrus or animal skins, you can just easily wipe it off, erase it, and reuse those, uh, those skins or those papers. You can kind of think of it, it was kind of like a dry erase board, right? On that certificate of debt would be what you owed, and it was wiped off clean as if it was never written. Think about that. Think of, of, of eternal, this eternal giant dry erase board that captured every sin you've ever thought, said, desired. And just like that, the Lord just wipes it clean. It's gone. It's been canceled. That's what has happened. We see that in, you know, in Psalm 51, which we studied a, a few weeks back. This is, what, this is what David was crying out for in Psalm 51, verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. Remove them. Think about this. Your sin, your certificate of debt has been erased. But for those when I remember when I was going to be at chalkboards, chalkboard's been erased. It's gone. Think about it. It's gone. Right? This isn't like your sin isn't stored in the cloud like we think today. Right? Like, no, it's gone. It was a child, it was written on the board and it's gone. There's no tr there's no paper trail on it. Why? Because it was nailed to the cross, he says here. 
the means of the cancellation of our certificate of debt and the forgiveness of our sins came by the nailing of it to the cross. On the cross, the Lord Jesus paid the debt that sinful man owed. First Peter chapter 2, 24. Who himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live in righteousness. By his wounds, we were healed. As the Lord Jesus hung on the cross and bore the sins of all who would come to believe in him, he endured the full wrath of God the Father, satisfying the requirement that God had for for the penalty of sin. Because of time, we'll have to stop there. Um, We're going to pick up a nail to the cross next week. Um, because we, if not, we'll just keep going. So I want us to, to really spend some time this week, church, really understanding just how spiritually dead you were and are if Jesus isn't in your life. Understand truly who you are apart from him, how wicked you are apart from him. And then marvel at the fact that that huge debt of sin that is owed has been forgiven because of what he was nailed to the cross. And that you have received new life. You have been born again. You have been regenerate, regenerated. God enables you to cry out in faith. He gives you new life. You cry out in faith. When you cry out in faith, your sin has now been forgiven. There's a beautiful transaction that happens there. And so spend some time this week marveling over verse 13 and the portion we've seen in 14, which we'll unpack more next week. Because that's where our hope lies. That's where the beauty of of it all is. Is that we see God do the unthinkable for the unthinkable. Right? Sinners become saints. Rebels become children. Right? Sons of the devils become sons of God. It's an amazing thing. Um, So let me close us in a word of prayer. um, And we'll pick up this next week. But tonight we will continue with our series on uh, core doctrines of the Christian faith, a firm foundation. We looked last week at the doctrine of the word of God. and we were going to look at who God is, but this week we're going to spend a little bit more time in the doctrine of the word of God. And we're going to explore what our response to God's word should be and how we should approach the word of God. Um, because if you don't get that right, right, you can know, have a good doctrine of God, but if you don't approach his word rightly, um, it's just as false in just as many errors. Uh, so let's close in a word of prayer. And I hope to see you tonight. Father, we come before you in the name of Christ. In the name of the one who, because of what he did on the cross, canceled our certificate of debt before you. We thank you, Father God, that you have made us alive in Christ, that you have forgiven us of all our transgressions, that you have regenerated us, you have given us new life. We thank you that you have enabled us to cry out in faith 
And we thank you that this life can only be found in the matchless one, in the glorious one, in the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, Jesus Christ. May we live in the fullness of this new life we have been given. And Lord, we know that a portion of living in the fullness of the new life we have been given is never forgetting the old life that we have been saved from. Father, I thank you for each person this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this family we have in Christ. And my prayer is, Lord, that we will continue to encourage one another with these glorious truths until we see you face to face. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.